David Hodge is an artist who takes creative inspiration for his work from his life. He spent 25 years as the Queen of Soho. Legendary drag artist Dusty O has hosted many iconic London club nights, DJed all over the world and been a star on the West End stage and screen. You name it, he did it in a huge wig and couture designer outfit. Here David talks about each decade of his extraordinary life, the highs and the lows. This is David Hodge, the boy who sat by the window. Hello, David. Hello, Jackie. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, in the last episode, we had just met the very miss... Dusty <laughs> She'd gone corporate, hadn't she? Oh, had she? Well, she'd kind of. She, it was uh, 2000 was the year that um, I became self-employed and she started paying the wages. <laughs> Full time anyway. Excellent. And so what was the role of Dusty O? Oh, God. How did she earn her money? <laughs> well, by 2000, I was fairly established on the London club scene and... Um, you know, I'd been working for really quite big names like um, Pushka, Ministry of Sound, Bambina, various, you know, I DJ'd all the big clubs, Heaven, Bridge. Um, so she was fairly well established, but um, the year 2000, by then, that was the year that I kind of like started doing my own projects and was less reliant on other people. Started promoting my own nights. I did a night called the Love Lounge. Um, Another night called Love Dust, um, various things for various different promoters in different venues. And what so, did those nights sound like? What was the music? Oh, I always played pop, even when I was, um, you know, doing the big trendy places that wanted house. They always got a bit of pop, a bit of R&B. <laughs> they got what I wanted, you know, because the whole, the whole point of Dusty O being a DJ, you know, when I started, I only started DJing because the DJ hadn't turned up. Um, we used to do a night called Bambina at the, uh, a place called Venom in Leicester Square. It was owned by Johnny Depp. And I used to host the VIP lounge. And um, the DJ didn't show up. And because I lived fairly near in King's Cross, I was the cheapest person to send home and grab my records. <laughs> so I went and just grabbed a load of old records and DJed badly. So this is, this is vinyl. <laughs> Yeah, this is vinyl, yeah. I mean, I didn't even know how to turn the one on and the other, you know, to turn one on and another one off. It was just a nightmare. So there was no scratching or mega Oh, mixing. there was no nothing. There was gaps in between. The needle was jumping. Uh, someone put a cigarette out once onto a record <laughs> because you could still smoke in those days in clubs. So, yeah, it was kind of by accident how I started, started to DJ, really. And um, they liked it. You know, because it was crazy. I was playing things like Shirley Bassey and mixed in with that. Well, not mixed in, blank, <laughs> piled on to a, like disco records and house records. It was all just a bit of old fun, everything. So it was just the, the stuff that you liked listening yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, it was my record collection. But it kind of caught on. And that was towards the sort of the end of the 90s. And by 
to the year 2000. That was when it was sort of the club promoters had noticed me properly, you know. And for a while I was kind of like the favourite. <laughs> Which is nice. Yeah, it was nice. It was nice. But um, the problem about that is I think you just get too used to it, don't you? And when, when someone else comes along, which inevitably they do, because that is the whole point of fashion, you, you are either in fashion or you are out of fashion. And when you become out of fashion, it's not so fun, is it? You t- um, It wasn't for me anyway. I always tried to sort of regain a little bit of that lost prestige. But that first five or six years of the year, two, you know, the 2000s were kind of like my heyday, really, was when I was doing television and um, lots and lots of press. This is, this is all as dusty All as dusty yeah. And I never had a manager. I, I always used to manage myself. I got a couple of offers of management, which I always turned down. Why did you turn down management? Because I was too, so very precious about her. her. She was like, you know, well, she was my main moneymaker. She was the person who had given me an identity, really, in London. I'd come to London as, like, David and no one knew me and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, I was DJing and hosting clubs for pop stars and the very best venues. And I was one of the, the people to know, you know. Phone never stopped ringing for guest list and I knew all the right people. And so it was, um, it was, you know, it was, it was affirmation of my identity. And because I'd come from a small town, you know, with not much going on, um, my horizons had always been fairly limited. And all of a sudden I was thrown into this pool of absolutely crazy people and amazing lifestyles. And uh, it was very intoxicating, as you can imagine. And it was something that I, I loved, you know. So the whole Dusty thing, she was the key to all that. And obviously I didn't particularly feel very confident as just David, the little ginger boy from Birmingham. So this glamorous creation, um, which had opened so many doors and was paying me you know, lots of money at that point, she meant a lot to me. <laughs> and did you see it as a job or when you were Dustio, were you going out and enjoying yourself? Or, or did you think, no, no, this is a job, I'm being professional? I was never particularly professional, I have to say, and I think that was part of the joy of what I did, you know. It was fun, and I was, in those days, I was very, na- I think I, I became more affected as time went on, and gradually my personality changed into something that wasn't particularly who I was, but that was a little bit further on. At this point, I was still young, beautiful, you know, I was at the height of my, how, how beautiful I looked. So you were early 30s at this point. Yeah, yes. I think that was like my, my high point. I think once you get to your 30s as well, you're a bit more confident. Confident in your head and confident with your body and whatever. And I certainly was, you know, I'd, I'd go out and dance with Grace Jones in a book. Just wearing a bikini on the set, we got packed once. And I mean, I couldn't do that now, obviously. <laughs> and how but, was Grace Jones? Uh, oh, she's nuts, Grace. She's, a, she's wonderfully nuts. I've worked with her a few times. She's lovely, but very scary. So you got into this celebrity world, mm-hmm. and were you accepted into it? Because I was fashionable, yes, they'll accept anything. You know, if, if you went out with a, a pig mask on and dooley boppers. If you went to the right places and knew the right people, there'd always be someone to tell you you were fabulous. And, you know, 
it's like the emperor's new clothes, isn't it? You know, <laughs> when he's not wearing any, and everyone goes, oh, you're a fabulous girl, fabulous. Sort of that scenario, that whole London fashion scene. And it's still the same today, you know. And the joy of being in it so long like I have is I've seen so many people come and go and be the darling. You know, I, at this point, I was the darling. But then after me, there was someone else. After them, there was someone else. And you see them almost mirroring my career in a way. Like there's people around now and what they're doing, and you can see where they are. You know, they've, they've had their peak. Now they're slightly teetering off a little bit and they're branching out into the more commercial side, which is exactly what I did, because it gives you a bit more longevity, keeps the money coming in, you know. And it's, it's quite bizarre to see it, really. You see people doing things and you think, oh, God, they're making the same mistake as me. But obviously, if you say that to them, they go, you're just bitter because you're over, you know. <laughs> but back at the beginning, you were having a great time. I was. I was having a, a lovely time with Showbiz myself. parties. <laughs> yeah, lots of parties. DJing around the world. 26 countries um, in four years. And you managed fun. that yourself. Yeah, I did have one. I had an agent who used to book my DJ work, my international DJ work, but all my UK DJ work I did myself. Had a driver, full-time driver and PA who I used to pay. And that didn't work well. <laughs> but that's another story. Um, yeah, so it, it's doable. It's doable. But it does become a lifestyle. It's not just a job. I would never turn off. I would always, you know, have my eye on the ball. So was David the sort of manager of Dustio? No, not really. When all that started... Um, she became her own manager, really. Did you find that you'd become her for most of the day? It was, no, no, it wasn't like that. I mean, I was always me, but I'd always got my eye on the ball and what was going on in the London club scene and where they were looking for DJs and how my brand would fit into that because I'd got a very specific brand with how I did drag. It was, you know, couture, high finish. It was rich looking and costing. And when people paid for that, you know, that's what they expected to get. They wanted, you know, they didn't want some little boy in a tatty wig and a pair of battered stilettos turning up. They got the full deal, you know. And to do that is time consuming, energy consuming and money consuming, you know. So everything I was making really was going back in to creating another look for the next one. So it was like a cycle of, of drag, really, never ending cycle of looks, wigs, clothes, how to get here, how to get there where the next gig was, um, it, it, you know, it is a very time-consuming thing because you don't just go to work and do your eight hours or however long you do. I would always do three and a half hours preparation before I left the house. And so people would say, well, you're very expensive. I can get so-and-so for 200 quid. And I said, mm, yeah, and the difference is. <laughs> and you'd show them the difference and say, well, that one's wearing this and I'm doing this and it is snobby and it is elitist but that's how the world is did you make friends um within that sort of community oh yeah i made lots of acquaintances and people i was friendly with but i've always been very lucky in that i've always had a core little group of four or five people some of whom i went to college with some of whom i moved to london with and they've remained my friends through thick and thin. But the whole sort of 
club scene and disco scene and drag scene, I would say I made friendly acquaintances. Because it's a small world, people are very keen to get the work and they'll do lots of things to get that work. And, you know, stabbing you in the back is one of them, unfortunately. Because, you know, there's not enough jobs for everyone and everyone wants to be a star. You said you enjoyed it, but it doesn't sound very enjoyable. It sounds quite manic. It is. It was manic, um, but it was fun. Bear in mind, I was young. I was, t- I was taking lots of like naughty things, drinking too much. I did have a lot of fun. It was, you know, we had a lot of laughs. And because obviously I was doing well at it and I was Queen Bee at that period. Um, the Queen of Soho, in queen, fact. Well, yeah, she actually came along a little bit later, actually. But this was the foundation for the Queen of Soho, yeah, I suppose. So I was having a great time, you know. So making lots of money. I didn't work in the day. I saw all my friends, you know, going to do their office jobs or whatever. I lay in bed and got ready to do something fabulous in the evening, you know, and wear beautiful things and mix with interesting people. And it was, it was enchanting. It was bewitching. But it wasn't real. And how important was Vivian Westwood then to Dusty O? She was everything. <laughs> I always wore Vivian. I mean, I'd always been a little bit obsessed with Vivian when I was a kid, you know, when younger, teen, because I could never really afford it. And um, I'd had a friend who used to wear Vivian when in my teens and he'd always go, oh, do you like this? It's Vivian, it's Squiggle, it's Pirates, blah, blah, blah. And of course, I could never afford anything like that. So as soon as... I was earning decent money and, you know, could afford it. I went head over heels for it. And she, it was very important for my image as well at that time. It was very associated with Dusty Ho War Westwood, you know, and they were very kind at Westwood. They gave me a massive, I think I was on 70% discount at one point. It's down to 40 now, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, I used, to, I, I used it very inventively. And, and at that time, Vivian was at the cutting edge of fashion. She was at the cutting edge of, of, of sort of everything club-wise. You know, if you weren't, hadn't got Vivian on in those days, you were a nobody, you know. So there, when the little drag queen turns up with top-to-toe, platform elevators, the lot, you know, it was like, oh, wow, she looks good. Yeah, so it was very, very important to me. And you had your, within this time period, you had your 40th birthday. Yeah, by, by the time I was 40, I'd been in, obviously doing clubs and things for quite a while. You know, I think over 10, 12 years or something. And I was running, it was one of the first clubs that I ran on, on my own completely. It was called Sound on Sunday and it was at a place in Leicester Square. And I'd been doing the limelight with a guy called Gary Henshaw on a Sunday for donkey's years, just hosting it and introducing the acts and also a bit of DJing. And it was a lot of fun. But then the Limelight, beautiful club in a, an old church, it was closed down and it became um, like a, an Australian theme pub, which was devastating to see such a beautiful and, and historic building turned into something like that. So we moved the club to Sound in Leicester Square. It's now gone. Another one been demolished. And we started doing our Sunday evening there. Gary left after a short while because it wasn't making enough money for him, amongst other reasons. And I took it on on my own. So promoting sound, um, the Sunday night sound on Sunday, gave me the perfect opportunity to start doing things that I wanted to do and have guests that I wanted to have. 
And of course, I was friends with George at that, that time, still am, but um, he was promoting his musical Taboo, which was um, on in the West End, about a legendary iconic club Taboo and Lee Bowery, who was sort of like a club, fabulous club freak and fashionista, very dressed up. Um, looked a bit like an Eon exploded mattress. <laughs> Amazing person. He was great. I, I did a play with Lee Bowery yeah, in the a, 80s. He was a lovely person. He was fantastic. He was so funny. Yeah. Yeah, he was great. <laughs> great fun. Well, by the time I'd come along, unfortunately, Lee wasn't at his peak then, really, you know, because I was a bit late, but slightly after. But obviously, his presence was felt. By the time George was promoting the um, musical, Lee was dead, unfortunately, sadly. George had written this amazing musical called Taboo and he was playing Lee. So I thought, oh, well, I'll see if George will come and do a PA for my birthday at Sound. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And he did it for like £250 or something, which the club was absolutely overjoyed. Obviously, it was mates, right? And he bought quite a few of the cast and musicians and blah, blah, blah. And um, my mum came down and it was the first time that she'd come down to London to go out with me. And got ready at home and everything, you know. I'd got At the time, I'd got long black and white extensions, which she was horrified at, <laughs> in that usual way. But And on the night, she came to the club. She was, how old would she have been then? She'd have been about 60-something. And she knew that George was going to be playing, and she was quite excited about that. But when he came on, obviously, he didn't do any of the culture club hits or any of his solo hits. He just did songs from Taboo, dressed as Lee Bowery. So I could see my mum sort of looking perplexedly at him. He'd got a huge bustle skirt, check played bustle skirt, and a crash helmet with mirrors all over it. And I was, and I could see her looking at him. And I was going, "That's not George, is it? That's not George." To my sister, my sister told me this later. <laughs> and so I went and got mum and said, "Oh, come and say hello to George then," and took her around backstage. And she looked at him and she said, well, I was expecting to see you in your hats and ribbons. She said, but you come on stage in a crash helmet. Did you come on your motorbike? <laughs> so it wasn't the best to start, but he didn't mind. He thought it was funny. Um, people but, don't usually mind other people's mums. No, no, no. Well, she's, she's got a picture of that night, actually, on her dressing table at home. She now has helpers you know to go in and get her out of bed and things like that and apparently the other week one said um jean who who's that in the crash <laughs> <laughs> she said oh, it's boy george ah david knows him and, uh, and and she said well who's that one with the black and white hair that woman I said, that's our david <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny old world so you were Promoting clubs, yes, club nights. I was promoting various club nights. I did several. I did, um, I did a very successful night at a place called The Ghetto, which was run by a guy called Simon Hobart, who was a legend on the London club scene for doing pop and indie. And, you know, he, he'd been around for donkey's years and had worked and run some of the most prestigious and amazing venues, really, for the queer culture. He'd bought this little venue in town at Falkenberg Court, just off uh, Charing Cross Road. And he called it the ghetto and he asked me to do a Tuesday night. Well, Tuesday night is a notoriously bad night in Clubland. No one ever wants to do Tuesday. You know, it's like zilch. So 
I said, I'll go on, then I'll give it a go. But it really worked and it lasted for 12 years, oddly enough. And um, we called it Don't Call Me Babe because that I'd previously done another night called Babe and Simon said, well, I like the music that you play at Babe, but I don't want it called that. Oh, well, you know, and there was that film around at the time with Pamela Anderson. So we, we called it Don't Call Me Babe. No, it wasn't Pamela Anderson in that, was it? Was it? Don't Call Me Babe it was a pig. Babe was a pig? Yeah, but Don't Call Me Babe was the one, <laughs> a line that Pamela Anderson had said in a film. Okay. That's it, let me get it right. It's a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, so we call it, and it, it really, really kicked off somehow. And every Tuesday, we'd have queues around the block for this little, tiny, little, weird kind of club in the basement of a building underneath a theatre on the corner of Soho and Chinatown. It was most bizarre what works and what doesn't work. But it was pop music. It was me getting very drunk. It's about shows. timing as well, a lot of the time, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Timing and who it's associated with. I think because Simon was always so cool, he'd always get a crowd. And I think when he associated my sort of pop commercial sounds with his cool credibility and thrown in this sort of extra element of drag as well and... By that point, I was quite well known. Well, I was very well known on the club scene. So I think it all helped, you know, but it made a, a night that people still ask me about it all the time. Oh, bring Babe back. I said, whoever bought it back, everyone would be in their 50s. No one goes out. <laughs> you know, they might start going out again. No, they won't. I know. I know. Those <laughs> days are over. I'm not putting any of my money into anything like that. Thank you. <laughs> but also as well, it's nice that you've done it. That's what I always think. So I look back and I think, well, it's nice that I've had some hits, you know. I've had some good Clubland hits that people remember because Clubland is so fickle, you know, and so many nights come and go. I've done so many nights that initially, you know, to be booked to play at and they go, oh, this is going to be amazing, this is going to be amazing. And then the second week, no one goes. And they fold within a month, you know. There's so many like that and there always has been. But luckily, I was, I got myself a three or four sort of quite, long running hit nights which was wonderful you had issues with your drinking at that point the issues with the drinking really came around because when you're working four and five nights a week which i was um you're expected in a way to sort of be like your punters to be in the same frame of mind and have a party and have a party it was party a party every night so and i did and gradually addiction kind of creeps in, doesn't it? And eventually it, you know, it gets to a point where you have to have a few drinks before you can even contemplate sort of joining in. When you've been doing something like that for a long time, which I did, you know, 25, almost 30 years, it becomes just so ingrained that it's just what you do and you don't really start to think about it until it gets out of control. And that's what happened with me, I think. I think, you know, for a long time, it was just, oh, Dusty likes a few scotches, you know, which was my drink, scotch. And um, so I'd always have two or three drinks and then another two or three, and then two or three became two or three doubles and two or three became eight or nine. And, you know, gradually it was just amounts increased. Um, but it was, it did become a problem for me, you know, definitely. And how did you deal with that? Um, well, realistically, 
I only dealt with it when I stopped working in that environment. Um, I tried a few times while I was still working in that environment to, to cut down, to stop. I went to AA. Um, I was aware that it was a problem, um, but I couldn't break it because I couldn't break from it because of the cycle that I was in. You know, it was like a cycle. I, ha- I was in that environment. You have to remove yourself from that environment to sort of break those kind of cycles. And the sad thing was I saw it destroy so many people, you know, through, through the club years. So many people destroyed by alcohol and drugs. And, and yet, initially, you know, for the first 15 years, I'd always been quite strong and quite self-reliant and didn't overindulge and everything. So, and I was, oh, they're weak. They're, you know, they're stupid. They're the stupid ones. But I became the stupid one eventually. And long-term alcohol use like that, it does affect your personality. You know, I actually saw, looking back now, I can see how I went from a very nice person, really, sort of initially, into something that was quite bitter, someone who was quite grasping about what they were doing, quite frightened. I was, it was fear, really, fear of what you'd built being taken away from you, fear of the next person coming in and filling your shoes and everyone laughing at you and thinking, oh, she's over, she's over. And, and you know, I'd kept it going for a long time. Do you think that had, uh, had had some bearing on the fact that that happened to you as a child? Well, I saw alcohol destroy my father in many ways. It destroyed his career anyway. It never totally destroyed his personality. But um, so it was something that I was always aware of, you know, and it was strange how I let it slip in and uh, affect my life in the way it did. And did you speak to either of your parents about it? Did you tell them that you were going to AA? No, no, I didn't speak to them. And why was that? I I never really had that kind of relationship with my parents, ever really. My parents, and I say this in in a very loving way, my parents were and are, my mum, still mainly interested in themselves. (laughs) And... It's not something I resent or re- regret in any way, but that's just how it is. The kids, we revolve around them. They don't revolve around us. And a lot of our problems we've had to sort out ourselves. And that's fine, you know. I think we've done an okay job of it, really. But um, So, yeah, it was not something that I could have turned to and spoken with my mother about because my mother has this wonderful ability to see a cloud in every silver lining. <laughs> You know, <laughs> and it's funny because you 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 are completely the opposite, yeah, aren't um, you? Because I never wanted to be like that. My mum's quite pessimistic, and you know, if you if she if she won the lottery, she'd say, "Oh, but you know, I've won the lottery, but there's going to be someone to defraud me of all that money, and the, the banks will take it." And she that's just her personality. I think she's had a lot lots and lots of life knocks, and it's become um, ingrained. And it's also, I think, it's a, a Midlands thing as well, to be honest to be a bit pessimistic. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm not like that at all. And so back to Dusty O, so the height of Dusty O, um, was she political? No, not really. I mean, I've got political views, but my political views changed over the years. I think initially I was fairly right-wing as a, my political stance. I wouldn't say I was a conservative, but I would be virgin on it. And gradually, as I've got older... And seeing the necessity to be kinder, to be more, less, less judgmental. 
and see how the world, you know, can benefit by change, really. I've become more and more left-wing, which is bizarre, really, because I, it was, I used to not, not be that way inclined at all. And during those years, I think I made some silly mistakes, really, because um, obviously I was listened to by the club scene and the kids and things. And in magazines like Boys and QX, I would sometimes say political edged things that now I look back on and, to be honest, I'm quite embarrassed about because I hadn't thought them through. I just thought that they were the thing to say. Um, you know, it was a narcissistic trait, really. And it's weird, isn't it? Because you can change your, you can change your gender, you can change your mind, you can change almost anything in life. But when you say you've changed your political views, people don't believe you because it involves changing your moral, your, how you, your moral outlook. My moral outlook on that particular time, this particular time we're talking about, was heavily, um, heavily influenced by alcohol and uh, drugs, basically. So, of course, I wasn't going to be talking as I really felt because I didn't know how I really felt because it was being interfered with. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. It, it's, it's, um, I don't think I grew up until I was about 45. I don't think I really thought about much in depth and how it affects other people. I was just driven by this, this thing with Dusty O to make her a star. Come, Which you did. Come hell up. To an extent, yeah. I mean, she did lots of interesting things. She was on telly, she's been in magazines, papers, you know. She was well known. What was the most fabulous thing she did? Um, I once went to a Versace party in Milan and um, on our table, obviously it was George, I got the ticket through him, but, but, but um, on our table was Cher, Janet Jackson, Rupert Everett, Trudy Styler, Sting, Donatella, and Karl Lagerfeld. Wow. And I remember sitting there and thinking, wow. <laughs> Why are you here? <laughs> and, but I did get pictures with nearly all of them, which is wonderful. And the one with the picture I got with Karl Lagerfeld has been used for so many things. People always steal that because apparently he would never do selfies with anyone. But I didn't really give him the opportunity. I just sort of barged up and went, come on, Carl, let's do a photo. <laughs> and he didn't really get a chance to say no. And he was very pleasant, actually. And Madonna. Did you meet Madonna? Yeah, I met Madonna. I went to dinner with Madonna. A friend of mine um, had another friend who was Madonna's interior designer. And it was that period where she was with the guy, what's his name, and living in London, you know, when she became all British. And she was having a party at um, a restaurant that the interior designer had done some work in. So we got invited. So we, t we both turned up. Wait a minute, just talk me through how you pr plan your outfit, knowing that you're going to meet Madonna. Well, I just, I didn't really plan it particularly. I wanted to do something a bit risque. So I wore a bikini with a fur coat over the top <laughs> and it was like a, a Westwood Basque bikini thing. We got there and there was security by the door and blah, blah, blah. And they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> and my friend Philip was saying, oh, well, we're here for the dinner with Madonna and David, who's her friend. 
So he had to go in and get David to come in and get, get me from outside. So I'm standing in the road in a fur coat and a bikini with all these paparazzi knowing what was going on inside, all crazy, saying, well, who are you, who are you? And um, feeling very embarrassed, to be honest. But we went in. Madonna joined us on the table. There was about eight or nine of us. And uh, she wasn't very friendly, to be honest. She didn't really chat with many of us. She spoke mainly to her close friend. And, um, yeah, it was a bit of a letdown, to be honest. I thought how cold she was and, and sort of unfriendly, which, in, in, you know, in retrospect, I don't really. Uh, well, why should she be friends, friendly, you know? She must have people like that in those situations continually. But I, I, was, I did feel a little bit disappointed. And when, when people say to, say to me now or say to me, because I dined out on it, obviously, for months, <laughs> years, um, about this dinner with Madonna, when I say, well, what was she like? I always say, well, she was a woman of very few words, particularly to me. <laughs> but the strange thing was after that, I got asked to do this television programme called Lie Detector, where you went on and you made a claim and then um, you went on a lie detector and they'd ask you questions to see if the claim was true. So I went on this programme and mine was had dinner with Madonna and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I passed the lie detector test. So at least I always thought, well, that was... At least it proved I wasn't lying that I'd been to dinner with Madonna, even though I did only say about three words. Doesn't matter. No, I sat next to her. <laughs> and I also tried to be a bit flash at the end of the evening. So as we were leaving, she turned around and she said, so, oh, bye, everyone. And I looked at her and I said, I'm sure I've seen you on the number, nine, on the number 73 night bus. <laughs> and she just looked at me, she didn't know what a night bus was, obviously, and just sort of like blanked me with this really... Peculiar look. I thought, oh, you've made such a titty yourself there. <laughs> Why? Why didn't I just Why leave? Why did I just show, shut up? <laughs> We're all human. Exactly. Your friendship with George continued throughout this decade. Off and on, you know, George and I have, and he's the first to, to admit this, we, we've had our ups and downs. We tend to fall out about silly things. He always says it's me falling out with him which isn't always true. <laughs> Don't fall out again now. George is an incredibly gregarious person and he likes, he likes people. He loves people. He loves different talents. He loves outrageous people, people with great stories. And because of who he is, he attracts a lot of people like that. So he's got this never-ending circle of new people that come into his life, which is wonderful. It keeps him fresh and in touch with what's going on and, and, you know, he loves it. And it's great for them as well. But you do, as a friend, you do have periods where you're out of fashion. <laughs> and I totally understand and get that with George, you know, because he knows so many people and so many people want a piece of his pie. The best way to get a piece of the George pie is to not ask for it. Just wait. Be loyal. And... You know, and I think I was fairly loyal to, to George. I've had press offer me money for various things over the years. And he knows that I've always turned it down and even when I've needed it. And that matters, you know, to people who are in the public eye, I think, to be able to, they can, there's a few out there that you can trust that you know aren't going to sell stories on you. That's why it's lasted so long, I think, our friendship. And you invited him, you got involved with Pride. Very early on. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing, I was doing Pride 
the donkey's years, the main stage, Trafalgar Square, I would always host and things like that. But the involvement with George was when I was running Tranny Shack, which was the club night that I did for 10 years at Madame Jojo's. It was in our second year, I think it was, of Tranny Shack, and um, we decided to do a float in the Pride Parade. George had been in prison the year before, and, you know, for various things that we won't talk about, <laughs> his business, not mine. And he'd just come out of prison, and so we were doing this, um, this float, and we put together this lorry with all, you know, glitzed it all up with sequins, balloons, you name it, trying to shut signs on the side. And I put about 50 drag queens on this, this float and we had very loud disco music. And um, my friend Walt said, oh, ask George if he'll come on it. I said, he's no way is he going to do that. I'll drag through the streets of London after he's just been in prison. But I did. And he said, yeah, I'll do it. And he did. And he got such a joyous response um, after all that rubbish that had been going on for him, you know, prison and being told he was over and blah, blah, blah and all that. To see people's response to him was very, it must have been wonderful for him because obviously pride's a big thing in London and we were going down Oxford Street, you know, with 100,000 people on the streets um, and him on this Laurie, full of drag queens, singing Bow Down Mr. and Karma Chameleon because we handed him the mic and went, go on, do something, do something. And But he was wonderful. He played along great to it. And then later on in the day, he did a, a full set on the main stage. And so it was nice to be able to sort of help rehabilitate his image a little bit after his ups and downs. It was an incredible day, that was. It was a very long day <laughs> being dragged through the streets of London, um, but it was an amazing day. And is it important to be part of Pride? Pride's massively important. It still is. It always was. Um, I see Pride just as existence as a political statement. People who say, oh, we don't need Pride. Why do you need Pride? Why can't we have a straight Pride? Have a look. There's still people being murdered. There's still discrimination. You still get name called. There's all sorts of hideousness going on. Pride is more important. You know, it's only gay marriage is only legal in 32 countries in the world. How many countries in the world are there? There's nearly 300. So when those 300 have got all the exactly the same rules for one set of society as for another, then we won't need pride. Until then, we really need it. And I've always been very vociferous about it. OK, well, we'll leave that decade there. So it's on to the 2010s. So we've got pantomime comes into your life. Oh, yes, it does. We have <laughs> Madame Jojo's closing, unfortunately, but there's romance in the air for David Hodge. <laughs> so looking forward to that. Woo, <laughs> My husband won't be. George, I've compiled a soundtrack of the noughties. Of the naughty noughties. <laughs> Three of my favourite tracks. If you were stuck on a desert island and had to listen to one of them on repeat, which one would it be? So you might not like any of these, actually. <laughs> the first one is Oops, I Did It Again, Britney Spears. Second is Crazy, Niles Barkley. And the third is Can't Get You Out of My Head, Kylie. 
I like all of those, but I think Kylie probably because I think for me that was one of the most that was my favorite one of my most favorite Kylie moments. That video, uh-huh. I think William Baker did an absolutely brilliant job on that video. The song is just just one of those songs, isn't it? It just is so catchy, you know. Yeah, it's fantastic. You know, this is the madness of songwriting, is that you know, you work and work and work and work on things. And very often it's it's just finding that one little hook. That and one little thing, it. you know, just the bass line, <laughs> and she found it on that song. It's a great song. And she's again, a lovely little girl, as a lovely little woman as well, isn't she? She's yeah, so and I sweet. think she looks amazing in it. The styling's beautiful. Yeah, I, I know yeah. all the reference points. There's lots of, you know, Lee Bowery. There's lots of Judy Blaine. Yeah. It's very iconic. And, you know, and it really kind of fits with what I do now, and that is sort of almost recurating my own past and saying, right, I'm going to, I'm going to actually go and make a record that sounds like a record I would have made if I'd been in a band in 1976. Yeah. In the late, late 70s or whatever, or if I had been, you know. But you've always I'm, taken those references, haven't you, for like different albums. In your back catalogue, if, like, if you imagine if you go to, um, if you look at things like Tense Nervous Headache, it was very different from the one that came before. And... Obviously, the one that came after was, again, very different, more 60s glam rock, 70s glam rock. So you've gone through that whole journey yourself, haven't you, with um, your stars and techniques? and Yeah, but I'm doing it more now. I don't know. I yeah. just feel like I've just kind of found this insane freedom. And I'm just like, I'm just going to make a record like that. And also, I'm working with a really bunch, lots of different kind of interesting people. I'm working with this guy called Luke Begley from this band We Are Brando. I'm working with... Benny D. I've just started working again with Paul Masterson from Yomanda and of course oh, Robin Bay, the Kinky Rollins. So I've got my four yeah. <laughs> people just sending me. And then I also play them everything. I play everyone everything. So they start competing with each other. <laughs> you kind of just, you know, you end up getting this, you know, real plethora of kind of interesting music. And also I don't walk away from things like I used to. If I can't get something, I'll say, well, it's me that's the problem. So I'll come back to it tomorrow. Because I read that, for example, Bowie, when he was doing uh, Fame, he couldn't get it, he couldn't get it, and then he, he finally found it. And I think sometimes, you know, when you're a writer, you go, oh, I'm not, I can't bother with that, it's obviously no good. And actually sometimes it's just sitting with it for a while, you know, not obsessing. Yeah. Don't try to write a song. Let it just come from... Who, who is that? Let it be. <laughs> Let it be, yeah, exactly. Let it be. Okay, George, that's amazing. Thank you. Next week, we're going to be talking about music from the 2010s. This podcast was produced and edited by Jackie O'Malley. Post-production is by Carl Svensson at Tadar Media Limited. Music by George O'Dowd and Luke Begley. Produced by Kevin Frost. Original artwork by David Hodge. Podcast artwork design by Lee Dyer. This has been David Hodge, the boy who sat by the window. The boy who sat by the window With colourful thoughts flying through his head The boy who sat by the window This is some of the story But it's not over yet